Welcome. This podcast focuses on connecting to the history that is all around us, in our own communities, and the stories that shape who we are. Our seventh episode is a special one. It's a collaboration with the eighth grade students from Athens Middle School who are part of the Andrew Jackson Davison Club. The students will share four short audio stories with you that they created and that center on black history in Athens, Ohio. I'm Brian Costco, and this is Invisible Ground. Invisible Ground would like to acknowledge that we are on the traditional territory of Kaskaskia, Osage, Shawnee, Adena, and Hopewell peoples. You can find this show wherever you find your favorite podcasts already, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and more. If you enjoy Invisible Ground, please help us out by subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. You can find previous episodes and more information wherever you find your favorite podcasts already and at findinvisibleground.com. If you'd like to be a sponsor of this project or you have an idea to share with us, feel free to email me at findinvisibleground at gmail.com. And you can support the show and all of the work we do on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash invisibleground. This episode is sponsored by Ohio University's Tantrum Theater and their presentation of Hotel Barry by Jacqueline E. Lawton and directed by Jamika D. Holloway. It's November 29th, 30th, December 1st, 2nd, and 3rd at the Forum Theater on Ohio University's campus. To see showtimes and purchase tickets, including those that are available to streaming performances, visit tantrumtheater.org. We were able to collaborate with Tantrum Theater thanks to support from Ohio Humanities and the Ohio University College of Fine Arts Community Fund. I want to thank our community partners on this project, Mount Zion Baptist Church Preservation Society, Southeast Ohio History Center, Athens Photographic Project, and of course, the Andrew Jackson Davison Club and Angela Hall at Athens Middle School. Thank you all for making this project happen. Special thanks to everyone who's contributed to Invisible Ground in any way so far. You can see a whole list of sponsors and supporters on our website. And be sure to check out the new Invisible Ground Immersive Historic Marker at Mount Zion Baptist Church, 32 West Carpenter Street in Athens, Ohio. Our Invisible Ground app for Apple or Android will let you see three historic photos at Mount Zion, one in the grass on Congress Street right next to the building, one across from the building diagonal on the corner of Congress and Carpenter, and another across the street on Carpenter Street from Mount Zion. There's a few more photos you can also see on Court Street across from the former location of the Barry Hotel at our first marker, and more markers and podcasts will be coming in 2023. Now let's get on to the stories. As I said, you'll hear four short audio stories in this episode, each one researched, written, and put together by eighth grade students at the Athens Middle School who are part of the Andrew Jackson Davison Club. They worked with a producer to create these stories, interview historians, record their own narrations, and decide what to include in the final version. They did all this in just a few short weeks, and it was a really fantastic project. 
You'll hear voices of the students themselves throughout the episode, as well as interview clips that they did where you will hear from Ada Woodson-Adams, Andrew Chickie, Tom O'Grady, and Dr. T. Ford Ahmed. Let's start off with the most appropriate of the stories in light of the fantastic new play from Tantrum Theater. Here's our first story, all about Edward and Martha Jane Berry. Let's start off our story with the reading of a newspaper ad from the Hotel Berry in 1938. For almost three decades, this has been a hostelry of widespread fame. The fine tradition of being a good host was never more deserved, however, than it is today. The Barry's facilities and service are as modern and complete as any offered by Metropolitan America. We invite you to make the Barry your headquarters while in Athens. Mr. and Mrs. Barry both attended Enterprise Academy where they met originally. They had very good culinary skills, which eventually got them enough money to start their own ice cream shop. With the support of the loyal people in their lives, they were able to continue further into a hotel. They were very quiet. They didn't like to be front and center of anything. They were very hardworking. Mr. Berry, how he started out his career, finishing school just probably as his father got ill and he had to go to work, really learned the trade of being a restaurateur uh, working in Parkersburg at a restaurant there. The Berries had a hard journey trying to start a business. Edward originally started off carrying bricks and then digging ditches for $1.25 per day. After meeting and eventually marrying Maddie, Edward started a business which ended up turning into an ice cream shop. In 1893, the Berries bought the extension to their restaurant and started a hotel. They were very wise and saved a lot of money until they had enough money to open up a small restaurant. They not only were kind and generous and frugal, people said, you're so good, why don't you just open up a restaurant? And why don't you then from a restaurant, why don't you open up a hotel? And that's what happened, and it just expanded into the Big Berry Hotel. The Berries did struggle with upholding their hotel. The Berries were one of a few black business owners in Athens at the time. They faced racism in the community, such as refusal of loans and high interest mortgages, while trying to start their hotel. In a time of racial bias, the Berries never refused to serve people of color at their hotel. Edward Berry said he would rather lose his customers than be guilty of that disloyalty. Inside the Barry Hotel, there are many shops, including a restaurant, parlors, and a barber shop. The Barry Hotel was big, and there was a large ballroom, and the restaurant had lots of room. In fact, there's even a disco ball inside the restaurant. People come to the hotel for business meetings, since it was a prime meeting spot. Many famous people, even four U.S. presidents, would come to this luxurious hotel. The hotel was the first in the country to have Bibles, closet hangers, and sewing kids in their room. They had exceptional cuisine as well. The Hotel Berry had an interesting and exotic menu. Ever tried raisin sauce on ham or chilled tomato juice for lunch? Here is a menu from Saturday, November 1st, 1941. Broiled choice sirloin steak, sliced tomato, roast prime ribs of beef, fried spring chicken country style, mashed potatoes, buttered beans, garden spinach, stewed tomatoes, salad, hot rolls, and coffee, ice cream or pie. And for the specials, we have boiled choice T-bone steak, aloe berry, 
Sizzling club steak, garni, headless salad, french fries, rolls, and coffee. I would have loved to try something on that menu. Around a decade before the death of Edward Berry, the Hotel Berry was sold for what today would have been the equivalent of a million dollars. Soon after this, the Berries went into their retirement in their home around 1921, which was located behind Mount Zion Baptist Church. In 1931, Edward passed away. He was survived by his wife, Maddie Berry, who died 10 years later in 1941. What was questioned was whether or not the Berries had written a will for where their money would be sent following their death, as they had no children to inherit the hotel or the money gained from selling it. After talking with Ada Woodson Adams, we soon learned that although the Berries did not have children, they did have relatives locally, of which most likely inherited some of the money. As well as this, some of the money was most likely given to the staff, for example, a few barbers and such. He primarily donated to their church and trustees of the church to help continue church-related activities. Maddie donated and gave to a few separate funds, although they were primarily the same as Edward's. When Maddie was older, she had a companion or caretaker due to her old age. Her caretaker was included in the claim, so they were able to take some of the earned money. However, her will was very closely related to the one of Edward. The real question is, why would they tear down such an important historic building? I feel that it is important to keep them in good shape and realize their value before it's too late. At least for me, my hope and my task and my mission is to help you all understand why certain things are really important so that you can help in that work to advocate, to let other people know that make decisions, why something should exist, why it should be celebrated and restored. By the 1970s, I think when it was torn down, the history of Edward Berry and the Berry Hotel had slipped away. Somebody else had bought it and put final siding on it or something like that and it didn't look like it had all the historic character that it had previously and that was at a period of time when this town was losing a lot of heritage resources not only did we lose the Berry Hotel but several buildings on campus and they rerouted the the Hocking River and you lost the finest park in southeast Ohio the the old Athens Asylum grounds with the lakes and the, and the, the gardens and the big trees down there and so and historic preservation is not easy to do because there are people who, you know, historic preservation always starts after somebody decides to destroy something. And that's when people seem to get involved. And a lot of times that's just too late to do that. The community has to recognize the value of its, its own sense of place and start speaking up for it. And it's best to start speaking up for it before somebody decides it's gonna get demolished because by the time they've made that decision and the time you hear about it, they may have already allocated the money and, and signed contracts with somebody to tear it down. And that makes it even tougher. In this installment, we'll learn more about the Davisons, Andrew Jackson Davison and his wife, Eliza Brown Davison. You'll hear a few voices in addition to that of our student storytellers, Ada Woodson Adams, Andrew Chickie, and Tom O'Grady. Thank you. Eliza Brown was estimated to be born in the 1830s or the 1840s. She was born into slavery in Virginia. About half a mile from where she escaped her plantation just happened to be a Union camp. She served as a housekeeper for General George Armstrong Custer. She was enslaved. We don't know who the people were that held her against her will, but she escaped from that particular bondage and joined the, the military. 
whatever enslaved people were doing at that time, and that was everything, from the field hands to cleaning the house to whatever was needed. Eliza's time on the plantation was anything to do with field hands to cleaning the house or anything that was needed. She eventually escaped the plantation and joined General Custer's troops. During her time with Custer, she was a housekeeper and a good friend of the family. Signed up with George Custer's family when he was down there. She stayed with him and was an aide and cooked for him and things like that throughout the rest of the Civil War. During Eliza's time with Custer, she was very brave and selfless by breaking her bed up to make a fire, saving people from the middle of a river, sewing on patches for the soldiers, and caring for the boyish staff. Eliza met Andrew Jackson Davison, and they eventually got married. Eliza's jobs during her time while she was married to AJD included anything to do with housework, such as taking in the laundry or cleaning buildings. Eliza supported her husband she did odd jobs throughout the village and the town, supported him in his political efforts that when he was running for political office, did all the work behind the scenes. So Eliza was like most women, she took in laundry, did any kind of work that she could do as far as housework. Andrew Jackson Davidson was born into bondage in Alabama. He traveled to Ashtabula County with two Union soldiers. He then attended Green River Institute and Jefferson College to be a lawyer. But I think it was something like eight years or a little bit less than that. Considering being born into bondage like he was, he was not allowed to learn to read and write. Becoming a lawyer in that short period of time, when I was in education for eight years, I was just starting to figure out how to read properly. And he had to start from scratch to learn to read and get all the way through. Andrew Jackson Davidson was the first black lawyer in Athens and one of the first in Ohio. I think it clearly broke a lot of barriers down for him. It got him into places that he wouldn't have been able to get otherwise. But at the same time, from what I read about him, he was discriminated against greatly, both here in Athens and I believe in Columbus and some other places. I learned about him at the same time some of the students here at this school did a few years ago when they were getting his picture hung in the uh, courthouse a hundred and some years after it should have been hung there. So although doors did get opened, not all the way open, let's say. He then met Eliza Brown and they married on July 4th, 1873. They then moved to Albany and Andrew Jackson Davidson began working as a lawyer. A few months later, they moved to Athens, Ohio, and Andrew Jackson Davidson soon entered politics. He never won because the people didn't vote for him. So that's, that's the bottom line. Now the question is, why did the people not vote for him? I can only surmise that they preferred a white candidate over a black candidate, but I wasn't there. He also was a Democrat, I believe and most of the black community was Republican. I think that when we look at politics, it's a very singular type venture. And by singular, I mean, if you don't have the backing behind you, you're more than likely not to win. Backing comes in all forms. It comes in money, it comes in people getting out there and putting your name up in front of the public. Basically, Andrew Jackson had the cards stacked against him. But the thing that you want to learn from that is that he never gave up. 
You know, he felt like he had a purpose and, and something that he had to offer. And it's just like when he didn't get his picture taken with the other lawyers in town, it, it all had to do with race discrimination. Even though Andrew Jackson Davidson was an attorney, he had to work many jobs that were below his ability. He was a porter of the restrooms in the state capitol building of Ohio. In 1889, he was a worker in the folding room of a printing office in Washington, D.C., and then he became a janitor in 1891. While he was a janitor, he was only paid $720 a year. That is now about $23,500. If I were born living in the 19th century, I, I wouldn't have too much money to hire a lawyer. And I would try to stay out of trouble so I wouldn't need one. So there again, the black community probably didn't give him a lot of financial work because they tried to stay out of trouble. Those that did get in trouble probably didn't have very much money to pay a lawyer. He did get some jobs in the white community. Keep in mind, you're talking about a period where the only jobs available to black people for the most part were janitorial, coal mining, working in households. And so a janitorial job would have been a great job because it was secured and paid a little bit more money. And even though it, he was a professional person living in that time, it was discrimination that kept him from being the lawyer that he wanted to be. He sounded like he was a pretty good lawyer. He won his cases usually. And so getting a job in the courthouse uh, or the state house. So Andrew Davidson having a janitorial job was a good paying job at the time, but it was a degrading situation. AJD died August 24th, 1922. He was buried in the West Side Cemetery, but without a gravestone. This is because he died poor in the county home. Eventually, a man named W.E. Peters put a gravestone up in his honor. W.E. Peters was a surveyor who moved to Athens in 1888, who had a vast knowledge of Athens County and his people. W.E. Peters seems to have known more about more things associated with Athens County than you can possibly imagine. Not to mention all these people and how he found all these people who, who were buried somewhere without a stone. Although W.E. Peters made steps towards recognizing AJD, it was nearly a hundred years after his death that he got the true recognition he deserved. In 2019, the Andrew Jackson Davis Club, based out of the Athens Middle School, hung AJD's portrait in the courthouse after he had been left out of the 1876 composite photo of the Athens County Bar Association. Along with this, there was an entire Black History celebration, which is still an annual tradition to this day. In fact, this episode was created by the AJD Club to continue to expose the community to an incredibly important person who is not talked about enough. I'm Gabelyn Krischer. I'm Margaret Nunemaker. I'm Enzo Servideo. And I'm Blaze Radcliffe. And we're doing the Davisons. In this installment, we will learn more about the west side of Athens, Ohio, the historically black neighborhood that was central to the community here. You'll hear a few voices in addition to that of our student storytellers, Ada Woodson-Adams, Andrew Chickie, and Tom O'Grady. Cemeteries are full of rich, unwritten history. The West State Street Cemetery is no different. There are countless histories lying six feet underground, and their stories will inspire you. In this cemetery, 
Andrew Jackson Davidson, the first black attorney in Athens, and Eliza Brown Davidson, his wife, the assistants of the famous general George Custer, are buried here. Daniel Walden, an enslaved man who escaped to Athens, is also buried here. Debron Goyds is among the many black Civil War soldiers buried here as well. This cemetery is very important to black culture in Athens. It is where many important members of the community were laid to rest. So the West State Street Cemetery wasn't designed to be segregated. It wasn't designed to be separated by class. It was established a very long time ago uh, with the establishment of the settlement. The Primo real estate toward the entrance and on the one side, the, uh, the right side as you walk in through the gate, tends to have really large monuments that are well established. And it looks like there's a lot of people there. And then we look over the hill as it sweeps down and there's a, a, a wet spot down there. It's not as good of real estate. And uh, kind of the, the lower class um, black and African-American individuals tended to take up those spaces. So I don't know that it was by design, but it kind of just happened over time. The history of the wealth gap between the west side and the east side of Athens is on display at the cemetery, if you know how to look. The wealthiest citizens were buried in the prime real estate at the top of the hill, and working classes buried at the bottom. Class segregation was very prominent around the 1900s. We asked Ada Woodson Adams if there was a wealth gap, and this is what she had to say about it. The east side wasn't as well developed as you know it today, but the west side um, was most of the people of color, black Americans lived on the west side, the west end. And so, yes, there was a wealth gap because in the 1900s, most of the occupations that were held by black Americans were laborers, worked in the coal mine or the brick factory, laundryists, then there were professional people who were seamstress and barbers, and they probably even out the wealth gap. But for the most part, it was, there was a wealth gap. When you think about how uh, a place is developed, uh, most of the living spaces were on the west side, and so black and white people lived together on the west side, but black Americans were concentrated more so on the black side because it would cost more. On the east side, you would have more houses, individual houses, and on the uh, west side, you would, have, you would have the smaller houses as you see today. To this day, we do not know many stories about the Underground Railroad in Athens due to the nature of its secrecy. It was dangerous to participate in the Underground Railroad, let alone write about it. Most history about this movement is passed down through word of mouth. False basements and walls have been found in older homes, which hints at the Underground Railroad's existence in Athens. Here is Tom O'Grady talking a little bit about the black community in the West Side and one Underground Railroad story that turned out to be true. West Washington Street was kind of the heart of the black neighborhood. And I don't know if you know this, but there's a stairway that goes on down to uh, Union Street from right over here somewhere. If you go off the side of that into the woods on the side of that slope, there's foundations of a lot of homes. And I was snooping around those foundations looking for bricks about 30 years ago and an old fellow wanted to know what I was doing. He seemed to be the self-appointed caretaker of that space and, and he told me about the black community that, that had lived there at one point. And the road coming up past uh, 
you know, from past the train station and the river down there. If you look at old maps, it's called Africa Alley. They would take runaways or fugitives who crossed the Hocking River just down behind the train depot. And, and he said there were a couple of tunnels at the foot of the hill there, and they would hide them in those tunnels, and I don't know where the tunnels went. And it all sounded kind of interesting. But then one day they tore down a building at the bottom of that hill and exposed two brick-lined tunnels, just like he, like he told me. And I kept meaning to go check them out and explore them, and I, before I got around to it, a Chinese restaurant got built there, and they built a giant concrete wall that blocked off those two tunnels. So I never got to see that and see where they went. But he described them that way, and then they showed up that way. The west side of Athens was very industrialized. The Union Depot train station, built in 1889, was constructed by the Cincinnati, Washington, and Baltimore Railroad and was used as the main train station for Athens, Ohio. It was purchased by the B&O Railroad as part of their Southwest Line. After being the center of action in town for quite some time, they decided to expand it into its current size in 1915 and 1916. And if you really want to get to know your, the place where you live, it would always be good to go and maybe look up some people in the cemetery. For instance, some, I can't remember all the names now, but some of the founding fathers of this town are buried there. They served in wars. They were military people. They set up the university. Uh, and so you get a more of a sense of belonging when you get to know the people in the cemetery. Finally, we are back to the cemetery where we begin. The forgotten names run wild through the historic West State Street Cemetery, and I hope we have spread some light on the important names that have been lost in time, such as Andrew Jackson Davison, his wife Eliza. These are just a few important names of Athens history in the west side of Athens among hundreds. One thing that we believe you should take away from this podcast is how many people should know of these names and persons who had such a great impact on this community. Other things you should notice are things like the industry and landmarks. However, the most important thing we should notice is the segregation of wealth, class, and race that occurred in this town. In this installment, we'll learn more about the Mount Zion Baptist Church and its important role historically in the black community in Athens, Ohio, and beyond. You'll hear a few voices in addition to that of our student storytellers, Ada Woodson-Adams, Dr. T. Ford, and Andrew Chickie. Thank you. A church in Athens began as a small congregation inside a private home on Lancaster Street in 1872. From there, it grew to be a thriving place for the black community. The Berries later funded a larger building for the congregations. The building still stands today on the corner of West Carpenter Street and North Congress Street down the road from Athens Middle School. This is the story of Mount Zion Church. So Mount Zion as a church is a social and religious hub for a community. And that's true for uh, any groups of people during that time you have to think about. Uh, what are they doing when they're uh, just living their lives and how do they interact with each other? And a religious function tends to be kind of the center circle for life that's happening in a community. 
and that's true with Mount Zion, that uh, people are gathering in that space, not just for religious purposes, to go to church, but also to uh, see their friends, to get caught up on what's happening around town, to find out if there might be a job opportunity. Uh, all of these different things are happening in that space, and it's facilitated through that. Uh, and it's also a place where you get connection to, to culture, connection to the outside world. As the members of the church began to grow up and leave Athens, the congregations became less frequent and less populated until it became the vacant building it is today. With vacancy comes disrepair. Currently, there is a Mount Zion Preservation Society working hard to repair and preserve the church. Money, the dollar bill, that's what our goal is. Uh, we will need it to repurpose the church, to rehab the church, uh, and we will uh, also uh, need it to deal with the million dollar windows that we have uh, in, in the church. So we have been going about it by going after and writing grants, grants to federal government, grants to the state government, grants to the local government, to the regional government, and we've also been doing some fundraising, and we've had tremendous support from a group of, of wonderful entrepreneurs, stakeholders, etc., cetera, in, uh, in and around Athens County, and we've also received wonderful support from Ohio University and Ohio University alums. Uh, we just had Bar Weekend, that's the Black Alumni Reunion Weekend, and I understand we have about 28,000 black bobcats who have graduated from the university. And when they have their reunion every three years, they come in and they also lend uh, support. So we have a big helping hand coming from lots and lots of places. One of the things that she won't say, but she's instrumental behind uh, the grant writing, uh, reaching out to community uh, stakeholders who Gets, getting them involved in fundraising. We received a $75,000 grant from the National Trust that really helped us uh, keep moving forward. You know, you always have to have income to do what you want to do. And since this is a historic church that has been vacated for about 20 years, uh, there's a lot of uh, deterioration, but the church is solid for the most part. So most of the work that we will be doing will be cosmetic work, but cosmetic work uh, to restore is very costly. Fundraising and raising money is a primary issue. And one of the things that we're doing with getting students involved is uh, one of the projects we're working on and developing is called the Quarters to Freedom uh, Routes of the Underground Railroad. And some of you are involved in that project and um, not only will are we doing that as a fundraiser, but we're doing that as an educational piece. So all of these little pieces fit together to what we're doing to put our name out there and the recognition that we need and getting people involved and committed to helping us. Athens has never really had a place, a black cultural space, uh, where you can come and immerse yourself in the history of a culture that you may not be real familiar with. And so this is what we want to, to try to strive for. We certainly plan on it being a place for everyone to learn about black culture, okay? Uh, we hope that uh, we will be able to 
en enrich the community with different, and which, and which some programming we have done already. We hope it'll be a cultural center for all uh, and that folks will appreciate the kind of programming that we, that we put in it. A lot of people may still be asking why. Why is it so important to save this church? There are people out there who understand and they've given some great examples of why. One of the best examples given was from a boy who created a clay model of his bedroom. You did understand why it was important for us to save this particular uh, iconic building. Uh, as a few of you um, demonstrated in the pieces that you presented, especially I'm thinking about the young man at uh, Athens High School who made a model of his bedroom out of clay and painted it and said, if this place was destroyed, I, here I'm the ruler in here. He had his TV, he had the fan. He said, and, and if this was to be destroyed, it would be like tearing a limb from my body or a branch from a tree. So he understood the importance of why we are attempting to save Mount Zion. Saving your history is very, very important. And I think that you all got it. And I'm so proud of all of you. Thank you to everyone who contributed to this episode, especially Ada Woodson-Adams, Andrew Chickie, Tom O'Grady, and Dr. T. Ford Ahmed. Thank you to Josh Coy and Tantrum Theater for asking me to be involved with this incredible project. Thanks to Angela Hall at Athens Middle School, Jessica Siders at the Southeast Ohio History Center, everyone from Mount Zion Baptist Church Preservation Society, and Ohio Press. I want to thank my storyteller producers who worked with all the different groups at the Athens Middle School, Yafet Jackman, Nikki Mazaka, and Evan Shaw. Thank you to my editors as well, Chad Rich, who helped on the West Side Story and the Davisons, and Tommy Stump, who worked on Mount Zion. I handled the uh, editing on the Barry story and acted as executive producer for the episode. Thank you to all of the students from the Andrew Jackson Davison Club. Thank you for making these stories and for letting me come into your classroom with all this crazy stuff for a few weeks. Thanks to Achi, Carter, Cohen, Coltrane, Emily, Enzo, Galen, Blaze, Iris, Juju, Maddox, Margaret, Marie, Makai, Nadia, Scarlett, Simon, and Theo. Y'all are awesome. Special thanks as always to the Southeast Ohio History Center, Ohio Humanities, Ohio History Connection, Kleinpenny Educational Fund, Ravada Foundation, City of Athens, Athens County Convention and Visitors Bureau, and Winding Road, Ohio, all of our donors, Patreon supporters, and everyone out there who helps make Invisible Ground happen, both the podcast and our immersive historic markers. You can support what we do too on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash invisible ground or reach out to us. Music in this episode is from me, Brian Costco, along with Disjointed Mike, Pete Fosco, Matthew J. Rollin, Dead Winds of Summer, and Todd Jacobs, who also does our theme. This episode is dedicated to the memory of my grandmother, Rita Churshak, passed away on November 26, 2022, at the age of 95. Love you, Grandma. <laughs>